Ten years ago today, the U.S. military began bombing targets in Afghanistan. It was just three weeks after 9-11. No one knew it at the time, but a secret team of CIA officers was already on the ground, paving the way for the fall of the Taliban. Most of these operatives have never been named, but tonight, David Martin hears the story from the man who led the covert operation. By the time bombing started, the CIA's Gary Schroen had been on the ground for nearly two weeks. One last mission for a 59-year-old man who on 9-11 had been filling out his retirement papers. Everybody in the United States wanted to be the first person to go after bin Laden and get this, this, this hunt going, and here they had, they had given me that role. Schroen, who had spent 32 years as a covert operator, was to lead a small team of Americans, shown here with their faces blurred in a photo released by the CIA. The CIA's chief of counterterrorism gave him explicit orders to kill. I want you to cut bin Laden's head off, send, put it on dry ice, and send it back to me so I can show the president. Was he serious? Yeah, I think so. CIA pilots flew the team, codenamed Jawbreaker, in a Russian helicopter over a 14,000-foot pass into northern Afghanistan, armed with a small fortune. We had $3 million in cash, uh, in $100 bills that were uh, non-sequential and shrink-wrapped in $100,000 bundles. How heavy is $3 million? It's about 50 pounds. 50 pounds of cash? Yeah, 50 pounds of cash. That one helicopter, which not by accident had the tail number 91101, was their only way in and their only way out. There was no rescue plan. The military said that it was too dangerous to send their personnel in. And so we went by ourselves. The CIA and military now work closely together in operations like the bin Laden raid. It wasn't like that at the beginning. The whole US military was caught flat-footed. I don't think anyone had ever raised the issue, how do we go into Afghanistan? The CIA team linked up with fighters from the Northern Alliance who were trying to break through Taliban front lines and head for Kabul. They couldn't do it without U.S. airstrikes. Who's uh, directing the bombing? Nobody was calling the shots. It was almost useless bombing uh, because it, we really weren't impacting the front lines, which is where the, the, the Taliban fighters were hunkered down. It took another two weeks for American special forces to arrive with laser devices to pinpoint the targets. Then the bombing finally began shifting to the front lines. Once it did... Our guys were listening to the radios and the panic, the screaming, the shouting as bunkers you know, down the line were going up from 2,000-pound from bombs. Uh, I mean, they were just simply devastated. And they broke. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a very special guest on with me today, CIA Security Officer Thomas Pecoria. How's it going? Great, John. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. So you spent a long time working for the government, uh, working for the agency, wearing different hats and working different uh, locations in the world. I want to kind of walk through all of that, uh, if we can, and then 
You also have a book that's coming out very soon, and I, I would like to talk to, talk about that as well. What date is the book releasing, and what's the name of it? Uh, the book's called The Guardian, Life in the Crosshairs of the CIA's War on Terror. It's uh, published, will be published on 7 May 2019, so it's coming out very soon. Um, it's uh, available on pre-publication sale right now on Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble. And, um, it chronicles, uh, it's a, it's a historical memoir chronicling my 24 years as a CIA security officer. And, uh, uh, it, it basically tells, tells my story from, from before I got into the CIA and all the way until, uh, till I retired in, in 2013. Okay, so a lot of times people who kind of work in, in some of those security roles have military backgrounds or something like that. Is that case for you or? No, I, uh, back in in the day, back uh, I was uh, I was living in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That's my hometown. And I was uh, this is back in the, in the eighties, and I I was uh, I finished grad school, and I was coaching wrestling, and I had. No real background other than a short stint in Marine Officer Candidate School. I went through the first increment, which is a six-week class. So other than that, I had no military background. But um, I saw an ad in the local newspaper for uh, the CIA. So I applied, and in 1989, I was uh, selected. Um, and I went into the Office of Security. And um, in well, at the time, it was called the generalist role, but now it's called the multi a discipline security officer position, MDSO, and um, uh, with no no military background or uh, or even law enforcement, and received all my training um, while I was in the office of security. Then uh, a variety of other training um, uh, courses at the CIA. So later on, as as we started to get more into the war zones situation, we started to hire uh, more former military, uh, especially uh, in light of uh, some of the combat positions um, that we'd be occupying um, in Iraq, Afghanistan, et cetera. And aside from the very beginning of uh, the agency and, and the forefathers of the agency, was this up to the point of Iraq and Afghanistan, was this like the most direct combat that the CIA had been involved in and, you know, since the kind of beginning? Um, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't around, of course, in the Vietnam, uh, era, but, um, uh, during Vietnam, we had a significant presence in the war zone, uh, and, and we had some large bases and we were involved in a lot of different joint military operations. And so there were, there was a, I think a significant amount of, of, you could say combat, um, or exposure to that, that dangerous, uh, area. Um, in Vietnam, less so probably in, in, in the Korean conflict and then, um, and then, uh, or earlier that is before Vietnam. Um, but after that, uh, the, the things kind of quieted down. It was just the, the cold war, uh, working against the Russians. And then, um, when the wall went down, things kind of changed and we, uh, we ended up with, um, uh, the war zones in the Middle East and uh, the threat level significantly rose. And we got involved in a lot more uh, collaboration with the military again, uh, working against um, 
uh, terrorism and 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 uh, and that in the case of uh, Saddam Hussein in, in Iraq and then later on in Afghanistan. So uh, significantly more uh, combat time uh, in the last uh, last decade. Yeah, for sure. So would the would it be correct to say the majority of your experience and overseas experience is like Middle East and, and Southeast Asia or? Oh, I kind of bounced around. I, I was uh, I was not your typical security officer um, be, because of the timing and because of my interests and, and some of the things that I was able to uh, get into. Um, and a lot of that was just uh, they were available at that time and they weren't available before. Um, I, I spent um, uh, quite a bit of time in, in South America and uh, in Asia, uh, besides the, the Middle East, um, uh, working counterterrorism. And, uh, and also, uh, especially South America, I, I was working, uh, I was this, what they call the South America guy for uh, training presidential protection details for foreign governments. So um, I had a chance to travel a lot down there. Uh, that was that was one of the nicer uh, positions I had in my uh, 24 years. So that's basically just training a security team for a foreign nations uh, president. Correct, correct. And I did some some um, uh, some countries in the Middle East, um, one or two in in Europe, and then um, one or two in in Asia. I see. And that was just a break between. Um, uh, a couple, a couple of other different positions, but yeah, the best way to describe it is kind of to start out with, uh, you know, my my career came. I came in in, in a traditional security role, which is um, we do a lot of personnel security, which is pretty boring stuff. I, I started out doing background investigations, and um, and that's just basically interviews and uh, record checks, and it's a good start uh, to learning. Um, oh, the security uh, arena and and to understand um, the process, uh, how people are are brought on board or if they're going to get a clearance, how, how that process works. And then later on, I got it. Uh, I got we bounce a lot. Uh, every two to three years, we change jobs. And my second position was at the, in the security duty office at headquarters. And um, that's when that's when terrorism um, really. Uh, uh, struck us because uh, in 1993, prior to the first attack on the uh, World Trade Center, um, the CIA headquarters was attacked by a Pakistani terrorist. And uh, I was on duty during that attack and I called the local law enforcement and uh, was uh, heavily involved in, in the after action right up. It was a it was a pretty chaotic time. Well, it was a, it was a watershed moment for us because, um, it, you know, it was, we, it was, a, we were attacked at our front door. So that was at, at Langley or? Yes. Yeah. It was, a um, uh, terrorists decided to attack, uh, our personnel as they were, uh, turning off the main road into the CIA compound and there's a turn lane there. And, uh, he waited till there was a red light and he, um, jumped out of his car and, uh, he shot and killed two of our officers and wounded several mm-hmm. others. And then, uh, and then he was able to get away. It was, it was uh, basically later that day. He flew off to Pakistan, and, and it took us a couple of years to track him down. Um, but then he was uh, lured out of his hideout 
into a, one of the main cities in Pakistan, and he was captured, brought to the U.S. He was tried and convicted, and he was executed. Oh wow! So he was executed yeah. in the United States. Yes. Yeah. Um, he was. Uh, uh, this in Virginia. Uh, they were capital punishment was was still in effect, and um, and he was uh, he was executed. Wow, you know, I've I've never heard of that. That's the first time I've yeah. heard of that. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, and it was you know, it was pre uh, uh, the first attack on the trade center. Okay. So it was really one of the first, um, you know, major terrorist incidents, uh, and for us, it was a major uh, a major change in, in mindset. You know, before it was. Uh, nobody had been attacked at CIA headquarters. Result, there was a lot of deterrent effect, and but we had to rethink uh, our security after that. And for me, it was it was a it was a wake up to a a new world, uh, one that I inhabited for the next uh, you know twenty something years. So, was this the individual who carried out this attack? Um, was he involved with any organizations or was he, it was just like a kind of a lone wolf thing? He was, a, it was kind of a lone wolf thing. And he was, um, you know, his, uh, he had issues with the, uh, with the U S involvement in Afghanistan and, um, and some of the middle East, uh, policy issues. And so he decided to, um, buy, uh, an AK 47 and, um, uh, he decided to, to attack the headquarters compound, actually, the, the outside. And he didn't really have, much, according to his own testimony, he didn't have really much of, of a plan after that. He actually thought he was going to get caught. But yeah. when he didn't, he, he just jumped the plane and went uh, went back to Pakistan. That's we crazy. at first, tell you, this is uh, talk about fast forwarding to now, the you know, situations we're dealing with now. Um, we at first thought it was a disgruntled employee. Really? Yes. So we were, that's the first thing we were looking at. Well, it wasn't terrorism. It was a disgruntled employee. Wow. And now, of course, um, active shooter situations are uh, unfortunately way too much, too common. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So <clears throat> uh, I guess a, a lot of people don't realize, but the first World Trade Center bombing was connected to um, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who was really kind of... Uh, the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks. So that that's just, I, it's so crazy. I've never heard of that. At that time, the, the, the kind of radical Islamic terrorism wasn't such a big thing then. Mm-hmm. Yes. And well, there's, there's a, one of the interesting things um, in my book is the, the parallel of my career and terrorism Throughout the 24 years, because as I said, that was that was a that was a wake up moment for the CIA, and it was a it was a, a pretty um, uh, <laughs> chaotic uh, moment for me personally to, to be involved in, in in a situation like that. And I said, okay, now I I, I better I better get prepared. So I got heavily involved in um, protective operations. I um, I was actually uh, part of the first unit uh, put together by the CIA to do overseas protection of our personnel uh, working in hazardous places. And um, 
one of the one of the reasons why I wrote the book was um, it's the it's the prequel to the 13 hours story, the Benghazi story, mm. because um, that story basically talks about um, how protective operations were being done after 9-11. Um, but uh, what I talk about in, our, in my book is the beginning, uh, which started in 1990, actually, and the first official training class in 1991, which I attended, and then how we operated from that moment on all the way till 9-11. Um, and uh, it was a, it was a covert unit. It was, uh, nobody knew we were operating. We worked all over the world in, in a variety of really dangerous places. And, um, uh, we were highly su- successful in, in protecting our personnel and, uh, enabling them to work in those dangerous places and collect information that was vital to, um, to, uh, our, uh, protecting the United States. Did you have any, I thought maybe I read this somewhere. Did you have any experiences in Mogadishu? Yes, and uh, my first overseas deployment in, uh, as a member of the POC, that was what we were called back then, was the Protective Operations Cadre, uh, was a deployment in uh, 1993 to uh, Mogadishu. I was, I was one of a, uh, a number of teams that went in, and I was one of the latter group. Uh, of teams and we went in and um, this was when things really started to heat up and this was just before the Black Hawk Down, the battle for Mogadishu um, famous book and movie uh, Black Hawk Down which happened in October of 93 I was there uh, several months before that and I left in, in September and um, that was that. what's crazy about that situation is we didn't know till way later that um, a major player was going to get involved and uh, he was going to start to really affect um, what we did overseas or the, the U.S. and the, milita- the U.S. military. And that was um, uh, Osama bin Laden. He actually sent some of his trained guys into Mogadishu to uh, assist uh, fighting against uh, the U.N. forces, specifically the U.S. forces. And uh, they were, they were the, the unit that basically came in and um, uh, caused the, the downing of the Black Hawks. Um, they, they brought in the, the tactics of using multiple RPGs to, to attack helicopters. And um, uh, they changed the, the, the whole um, uh, texture of the, of the battlefield at that time because prior to their arrival – the Somalis were very unorganized. Um, they, they didn't operate at night. They, um, they were very inaccurate in terms of their mortar fire. But when this group came in, all of a sudden, we got pinpoint accurate mortar fire. We got attacks at night. Uh, they, they got very, very organized and methodical. And uh, it really uh, changed the, uh, the complexion of the battlefield. I would imagine that maybe some of those guys had experience uh, in Afghanistan against the Russians. Yes, they were they were coming from all over, and um, uh, they were bringing that that war zone experience um, uh, to to this new front. And it was you know attack atta- attacking the U.S. Um, outside the borders. Um, pro- you know, probably in their thought pattern pattern was the later to do it on inside the border, but um, um, 
there were some interesting parallels in my career. I, I kept running into this Osama bin Laden guy in terms of um, some of the locations I was working. I ended up working in Khartoum, uh, Sudan, uh, where he and a variety of other terrorists were. That's a, that was their hangout. We called it their their Club Med because um, uh, Khartoum at the time uh, would allow them to basically uh, operate with uh, impunity. Uh, that's where they went to uh, uh, have their R&Rs, their rest and re- uh, <laughs> recreation, uh, away from any um, uh, attacking forces. So no other governments could go after them there. So they were pretty safe. And um, that's probably where they did a lot of planning. But, they, but at the time, of, Bin Laden wasn't a big a big player uh, at the time uh, in Khartoum. We had Carlos the Jackal. We had uh, um, Hezbollah. We had Hamas. We had Abu Dhabi. All the big, famous um, terrorist groups were were hanging around in in Khartoum at the time. You know that that's that's really interesting with Hamas and Hezbollah being. Hezbollah more specifically being supported by the Iranians. I wonder if they had an issue with bin Laden. I know now, you know, the Iran has issues with a lot of the Sunni, uh, Sunni nations. I wonder if they had an issue. Yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't really, um, um, well versed in, in terms of the interaction between the, uh, the different groups. I just knew that they were there. They had their compounds they were hanging out and, um, uh, I read about some of the crazy things that uh, that occurred back then. They, they started, uh, I guess, they were bored and they started doing dry runs. Um, they would they would do practice attacks on our, our motorcades moving through through the city, going from our housing compound to the embassy and back. And uh, so things got pretty pretty scary there because you didn't know whether they were practicing or they were, or this was the real thing at that point. And we had to we ended up doing a diplomatic what they call demarche. Um, where we, we have we went to the officially to the, the Sudanese government and say listen this is this is not a good thing and the Sudanese basically then told those uh, terrorist groups just to knock it off so they backed down but um, uh, it, it was a pretty pretty scary time um, and then later on when I, I worked um, uh, in a variety of other places some of which uh, was in the Middle East where um, the effects of that, Radical fundamentalism um, had expanded. I mean, uh, when I was working in Asia in uh, 2001 to 2004, um, uh, the one of the Osama bin Laden's um, number one guys in Asia was working actively to go after uh, the U.S. embassy in Singapore, and then when that plot failed, he. Uh, his backup plan was to go after the U.S. Embassy in Manila. And uh, uh, his name was Humbali. And uh, he, was a, he was the number one representative for al-Qaeda in, in Asia. And um, a very, very smart, active guy. And he was making use of some of the local talent. There was a uh, Jamia Islamia uh, bomb expert that he was using. To, to put together his attacks. And this, this guy was uh, infamous for setting off five bombs in Manila in one day. This is uh, in uh, December of 19, uh, or no, pardon me, December of 2000. 
And uh, so there were there were some very scary characters running around in Asia at that time. Yeah, I know Bin Laden had uh, pretty strong ties in, in some of those um, some of those countries. I know uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, I think, had ties in the Philippines and um, uh, and. I guess a lot of people aren't aware of it, but the Philippines have a long history of being a place where these some of these terrorist groups would train and, and spend time before they kind of rotated into the Middle East or into Afghanistan. Absolutely. Um, um, the, 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 the architect behind the whole using aircraft um, to attack um, cities, uh, he he was uh, first spotted in, in Manila and um, uh, he was, he actually blew, uh, he, he burnt his, <laughs> his apartment down. And um, that's how we, we first got uh, tracking on him. And I'm going a little, uh, trying to remember the name of this guy. Um, Ramsey Yusuf, yeah. Ramsey Yusuf. And uh, who, who, by the way, is the, is one of the few terrorists that we have in actually, uh, in actually our, our, our penal system, he's uh, located in a supermax in um, Colorado. Mm, and right. uh, he was operating in the Philippines uh, and he was working his plan ba- out of the Philippines. And w- so was he related to Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Oh, they, they were all um, they were all part of, of a collective group that were working on these attack plans. And um, uh, so they influenced each other. Mm. And they, you know, he he's the one who st- really started the idea of, of using um, um, these large aircraft as as weapons. Right, right. And then I think shortly, oh no, he got caught in '93, mm. right? Or, or yeah. okay. And then shortly yeah. after 9/11, they went after like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and some of those mm-hmm. other guys. Yeah, yeah K- K- KSM was was caught um, in Pakistan. Um, yeah, he was uh, he was a major player. The, these the same places seem to always come up. You know, the, um, the areas where there's less control and there's a lot more um, uh, ability for people to move in and out and attend training camps. Like the Philippines, as you mentioned before, was, was a big place for training camps. Pakistan, for quite a while, was the seat of so many different attacks because so many people went through training there. There, there was a uh, major um, network of attackers that were working out of Pakistan. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, when there was uh, the airlines declared that nobody could bring anything on, uh, you know, on carry-on, that was a result of uh, an attack uh, plan based out of um, out of Pakistan. So what? So they were stopping carry-ons on any yep. flights from Pakistan? Yeah, or? no, across the board. They uh, for there was a there was a threat from a liquid explosive. So uh, they basically the airline just said no, no carry-on. Wow. So for a short period of time, yeah, it was a that was for some uh, very interesting times. <laughs> yeah, I got to go kind of weird. Um, so, so kind of rewinding back to your time in, in Mogadishu, were you there for a long time, or I was there for about fifty days. Uh, we were we were working, um, we were running protection details for our 
our case officers, our, our, our um, officers who are out uh, collecting data in a collaborative um, effort with the U.S. military, because one of the biggest um, impediments to the U.N. mission there were these um, these warlords, and one of which popped to the top of the list was a guy named Farah, Mohammed Farah-Adid. And uh, Mohammed Farah-Adid was, was formerly a, um, a friendly to the UN forces, but he uh, eventually turned on and his troops uh, killed a bunch of Pakistanis, uh, UN forces, um, at a, check, uh, a checkpoint called Checkpoint Pasta up in northern Mo. And uh, from that moment on, he, he became uh, enemy number one. And so at one point, the, the U.S. decided to bring in some heavy hitters, and that was they, they brought in the Rangers, uh, and hiding within the Rangers was Delta Force. Right. And, um, and that's the Black Hawk Down um, situation later on. But uh, at the time, uh, we, were, <laughs> we were operating, trying to you know, move our people around, getting them to, to meet their assets and uh, collect data. And uh, uh, Adid knew who we were because he was a former friendly. And he started to target us specifically. In fact, uh, at one point, he had uh, facial descriptions of three of us, three out of the four on the team. He had uh, license plates on most of our cars. He had, and he was really actively working to to get us. Put a twenty thousand dollar reward out for each of our heads. Wow. And uh, yeah, so it it got to be a very very dangerous work environment. And that's where we started to really learn the craft that we call low protection, low profile protective operations. And uh, that's something that we specialized in um, and, and that we, can't, we were very successful in. Um, to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, um, as I said, we've been doing low, low profile protection since uh, approximately 1990. And uh, during this, from then until I left in 2013, we never lost a, lost a protectee, and wow. we've uh, we only lost one one uh, one officer during that that time. And that was um, uh, now that was doing the primary mission, which is uh, mobile uh, security, moving our people from uh, A to B. And doing you know, uh, clandestine operations. When we were putting the, put in a position where we had to do static, where we were doing more defensive positions like um, um, protecting a site, which is really not our primary, we were not so effective. That, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we aren't in, we're not in control in that situation. We're uh, we're just added security, and so we've lost some people. Um, in those circumstances, and that uh, some examples would be coast and Ben and the uh, situation in Benghazi. Yeah, up until um, well, coast. I think, if I'm not mistaken, was was with the largest loss of life for the agency uh, for a long time. Or yes, yes, that was a that was a major uh, a major hit. We lost um, I think seven people and um, and uh, two of them Yeah. Chiva base, and uh, that was a that was unfortunately a, a, a preventable incident, um, and it was 
if you've seen the movie uh, Zero Dark Thirty, they they cover that. That's a pretty good movie for covering um, the war on terror. Uh, it's kind of condensed version, and uh, it's not a hundred percent accurate. Hollywood does what it does, but right. um, but it does give you a good idea of of kind of the pattern. What you know while we were pulling the thread to kind of get to Bin Laden and how long it took and and what kind of uh, what kind of work and, and and teamwork it actually took to get it done. So the the um for the the incident at Coast, when you say it was preventable, you is, do you mean just by keeping that individual away from the base, the the guy who actually well, uh, yeah, standard standard operating procedures were not followed. Um, and he this this individual, an unvetted asset, was able to come in into the into the camp and and actually get out of the car without having been searched and that's i mean it, it comes down to something as basic as that right and uh i, I hate to say the um but you know that that those were those that was an executive decision that was not the, the security officers on the ground right get that call right and, and, and that's one of, one of the risks of, of the business you know that uh, you, you sometimes things mistakes are made Right, right. Yeah, it's very unfortunate, uh, unfortunate situation. Um, <clears throat> so after um, after your time in Mogadishu, you had you came back home, and then what was the next kind of step for you? Oh, uh, I came back and um, I went right on to a, a counter surveillance unit for the uh, director, the actor. That um, was actually a former director, Gates, the, the the director and the deputy director. And um, at the time, we were one of the, probably the first <clears throat> major government entity that to do counter surveillance um, as part of the protection package. And uh, that was a result of, of having learned that um, uh, that the real weakness um, in the attack cycle on a protectee is is the surveillance part and that uh if you rely strictly on uh guys with guns and armored cars um you're you're not you're not going to be as secure you're 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 going to be vulnerable and um the, the best example of that is a situation with a banker named herrhausen he was the head of the deutsche bank and um the red army faction targeted him and um, so he had, he had a protection detail, uh, a very large protection detail, well-trained. Well it was the, the equivalent of Delta Force, German, the German Delta Force. And he had the top-of-line Mercedes-Benz armored car. Was that and, the, uh, the GSG-9, I think? Or? Yes, GSG-9, guys. Uh, and um, the, the terrorists were able to, to get right to him. And they killed him, injured his driver, and nobody else was, was hurt. They... Uh, they used a, uh, an explosive charge to, to, that was on the back of a bicycle um, uh, chained to a, um, a pole. And they, they uh, were able to uh, the time uh, the attack using uh, a light beam, some pretty high – at the time, it was pretty high-tech engineering. But one of the Red Army Faction guys was a former engineer. And uh, – uh, the platter charge went right through the back door of the car and killed the uh, Harrison. And that was kind of a wake up call in terms of protections that, you know, it's just guys and guns and 
armored cars are just not enough. You got, you've got to look at other things. Right. So um, I got involved in the, in the uh, counter surveillance and then I went into a unit uh, in our counterterrorism center, which is uh, spe- very specifically counter um, uh, counter surveillance and surveillance detection and uh, counterterrorism uh, activities. And I traveled for about two years uh, to a variety of locations um, doing that work. And what I was specifically tasked to do was um, look for the terror, the signature of terrorist surveillance and um, observe our people and other people. Um, and this was in Asia. Uh, and then I eventually I, I actually worked for General uh, in a variety of ways for General Nash in, um, in Tuzla, Bosnia during that conflict. He was worried about the terrorists uh, kind of hiding in the in the non-government organizations, the NGOs. And so we were tasked to come in covertly and to observe his troops and look for this signature. And we would we would spot, um, you know, potential terrorists um, uh, doing route surveillance, doing um, surveillance on their on their movements, uh, troop movements. And we would report in and then um, General Nash would have his uh, change their uh, tactics. Um, And uh, so it was very interesting time. So so for the guys that, um, you know, you guys are looking at, um, you know, you refer to them as terrorists. Were those guys the Eastern European um, terrorists or or were they mainly mainly, um, uh, the people from the region? Okay. Uh, Bosnians, Croat, um, Serbs. Um, everybody was in the conflict. Um, there, there were at the time we weren't sure how things were going to go, and we, and General Nash was was extremely concerned that um, that a terrorist attack on his troops was, was probably more likely than a straight on um, military battle. Uh, and so he uh, he found out about our counterterrorism unit, and he said, "I want these guys out here." So uh, I left Milwaukee <laughs> after Christmas, uh, doing the normal lying to the family that I was going to a training class in uh, Europe. And uh, so instead, I, uh, I ended up uh, arriving in Tuzla on New Year's Day um, into a nasty, cold climate, and. Um, uh, we were operating totally clandestine. Uh, I was uh, dressed in local garb. I was working with two other individuals. We were called we we were joking called the ethnic team because we were uh, we blended in the environment. Uh, I had a full beard. The other two guys they spoke uh, Serbo-Croat and Russian, which were two of the the, the dialects in the area. So uh, uh, we were we were skulking around and. Um, uh, providing uh, an early version of what they call now formally uh, force protection. Mm. So this was, um, was this was during the period where there was some ethnic cleansing going on, and um, oh, this like, was uh, yeah, this the Albanians. During, uh, this is during the conflict, um, and at at the time, uh, uh, we were things were things had calmed down in the. In at least that section of Bosnia, um, the, the Tuzla had been under siege for two years, so there was there was no hardly any food. There was no lights. 
you know, in most of the parts of the city, it was, uh, it was just terrible. But, um, as over the course of the almost two months that I was there, uh, things started to get better. So this was the tail end of that conflict. Okay. And, and, and the was U.S. This, really having have an effect. Was this at the point where they had already begun the ethnic cleansing in Kosovo, or this is after it? Oh, this is prior. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, yeah. kind of, um, I was watching, I forget it was a documentary or something, and um, it was from the perspective of people from uh, Serbia, from Belgrade, and they were like to the effect of kind of complaining about the um, the, the U.S. had done a couple bombing runs into I think Belgrade, mm-hmm. and I remember in the documentary these people were complaining about how the U.S. was dropping bombs on them, but it's like uh, you know they didn't say anything about what what their government was doing, uh, to, you know, killing all these people uh, prior to that, and I just found it really strange. It was a very strange conflict. I mean, uh, the, the 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 level of devastation that I saw just in that area and in Tuzla. Um, I mean, uh, the, the 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 depressing um, landscape. I mean, you, you're you're looking at houses that are all shot up. You're looking at people who are cutting down trees and laying them um, across the windows, the, these tree branches, to try to stop bullets from coming into their houses. Wow. Uh, uh, it was, it was a horrific situation and, uh, drastic measures needed to be, uh, taken to, to, to stop that conflict. And, uh, general Nash's, um, mindset was if, uh, if we need four soldiers, uh, I'm sending in eight. And, um, it, it I think is, it was very successful because he, he, be, you know, any any other military type units, Bosnians, Serbs, Croats, whoever, they took one look at that show of force and they said, well, probably not going to test this. And that kept the conflict. Uh, you know, that, that allowed the, the peace process to to uh, uh, be initiated and, and go through. Um, and, you know, the, the, these conflicts, there's there's no perfect solution. Right. And. The, the the Somalia incident was a, a was a, a a huge influence on our the U.S. policy with in terms of military peacekeeping. Uh, we learned the hard way that um, this idea that that we should keep the military profile low um, was kind of thrown out the door uh, because. Uh, that was one of the mistakes that was made and the reason we lost so many people uh, in the Black Hawk Down incident was because um, um, they were the, the military asked for armor and uh, the Secretary of Defense, Les Aspen, denied it on the grounds that he didn't want the conflict to look militant. So, and uh, so, so for later on, that, that, that thought process was thrown out. It's like, no, we were in here. We're going to protect our troops. Right. So at that time uh, that you were over there, the aggressors in that situation, was it the Serbians? In, in the, the conflict had pretty much uh, stopped in the areas that I was um, in Tuzla. Uh, in the other areas, I, I'm not sure uh, who was who was fighting who at that point. But I mean, there the um, 
to 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 pin down the atrocities to just one little group would be would be hard pressed. Like there was, it was a, kind of a, a lot of going, a lot of things going on at the same yeah. time. Yeah, and I, you know, if you talk to one group, they'll <laughs> they have their story and that and their pro, pro their point of view is probably right for that particular moment in time. Right. But the overall conflict was, I mean, you just look at Sarajevo and Sniper Alley. There was a there was a, a a street area where these snipers were operating, and they were killing men, women, and children. Oh right, yeah, I think they were just kind of shooting people dead in the street. Yep, and I mean, at a certain point, you got to say, okay, well, what is what is that? But these conflicts can can degrade into something horrific. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Some of my um, some of my friends are f- from um, Albania. Uh, Montenegro and um, mm. Kosovo, and I remember when some of that was t- going down. Like some of their fathers left, went over there to kind of help with like the relief efforts and stuff. And um, it was a pretty ugly situation. Yeah, yeah. Those those conflicts get they get they get nasty quick, and then it's very hard to see who's doing what. Right. So. So after that, I moved on to uh, uh, that's uh, after the, the counterterrorism unit. I moved on to doing counterterrorism training, uh, or specifically protective operations training uh, for foreign governments. So I did uh, I did uh, two, uh, three years of that, and that was that was great. We'd come in, um, provide training that a lot of these uh, places in South America had never had, um, and we worked with a lot of uh, of good. Um, protective officers from, you know, young uh, officers. I worked in Argentina and Colombia, and uh, some of those areas were more dangerous than others. Colombia was a rough place at the time. Uh, Argentina was nice. Um, I did that for three years, and then I, uh, my neck, and then I went back into actually doing protection. Uh, I, was, I was back back in harness uh, uh, working in um, – Northern Africa and uh, Middle East. So by the and time that you, you got back in, was this after nine eleven or? No, this is prior. Okay. Prior, yeah. This is uh, uh, 1998, 99. Uh, and then um, in 2000, I decided that uh, uh, I wanted to try something a little different. So I, I put in for a job as the uh, senior security officer for uh, uh, an area in Asia, and uh, so that's where I was during 9/11. And I was working um, in Asia, and uh, a lot. I spent a lot of time working in in the Philippines, um, and uh, a little, little bit in Singapore, and that. And uh, that was an interesting time because uh, at 9/11 we had a lot of a lot of terrorist activity down in that area. We had the, the J.I. operating in Indonesia and in the southern Philippines. You had a variety of groups in the southern Philippines. And then you had the terrorists uh, active, actually moving around, but they weren't too active in Thailand. But they were, they were there. That's, in fact, that's where, that's where we got him from Bali, was he was, uh, he was moving around in Thailand. And uh, so that was uh, three years where I was providing a, a lot of different types of support. Uh, I was... Uh, um, uh, helping the U.S. military with uh, with um, their operations down in the southern Philippines, I was doing you know, working counter the counterterrorism aspect support um, 
in, uh, in some of the other countries. And then 9-11 hit and, you know, we were, again, we were rocked by that, um, by, you know, the, the level of ferocity of that attack. And then, um, you know, with the implications from that moment on for us, um, you know, for, if you, if you work at the CIA and, and, and after 9-11, you were, um, you knew that things were never going to be the same, that the level of responsibility that, uh, we took for, for not catching that. And I, and, uh, the 9-11 report, uh, clearly showed that it would have been amazing if we would have picked up on it because the, there wasn't enough coordination within the U S government. But you, you, even with that, everybody working, uh, in defense of the United States, whether U S military or Intel, um, all felt a sense that, that we didn't do what, what we needed to do to, to protect the, the homeland. So, uh, uh, we were darn sure going to do what we needed to do, uh, after nine 11. So it became a very, very serious, serious world. Um, can you, if you can, can you describe, you know, what that change was like, uh, as you were there before nine 11 and then during and after? Before we hear back from Thomas regarding the changes the Central Intelligence Agency underwent after 9-11, I would like to give a quick thank you to my sponsor for this episode, Duke Cannon. If I'm thinking about a bar of soap, I'm not thinking about anything patriotic. But Duke Cannon has superior quality grooming goods, and it's for hardworking men, and it just so happens that it's tested by soldiers. They've partnered with the active duty military and helped develop these ideas and review some of their products. If it doesn't meet the high standards, it just doesn't happen. Now, I have a bunch of their products. I have their big-ass brick of soap. I have some of the beard stuff and some of the hair products. And I can assure you that there's a very high quality. And most importantly, why I support Duke Cannon is because they give back to the men and women serving our country. So portions of the proceed that they do generate goes directly to veteran causes. So if you're using Duke Cannon's big-ass brick of soap or premium hair goods, and it gives you that news anchor thick hair or your beard and shaving goods that help put your best face forward. Don't be surprised if you start singing the national anthem. No, seriously, visit DukeCannon.com right now and get 15% off your first order with the promo code RECON. That's R-E-C-O-N. And they're offering free shipping on orders over $35. Now let's get back to Thomas Bacora and the changes that the CIA went through after the 9-11 attacks. Yeah, uh, I was um, I was uh, traveling. I had just gotten back to uh, I was in the Philippines. I was um, got a phone call from the deputy get to a television. So I got up into my room and um, turned on the TV just in time to see the um, the first plane, the second plane hit the the tower, and um, I was working with two other individuals who did not have access to a TV. So I had a cell phone in one ear and landline in the other. And I was narrating you know, the events as they occurred. And, um, I can't describe how devastating that was. Um, just in terms of, the of, 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 we knew that things would never be the same in terms of our operations. 
And then the next day I had to, uh, uh, I do some administrative things. I was uh, picking up some supplies in a mall in, in Manila and the Filipinos were walking around as with no idea that how the world had changed for, for, for the U S and that, that was surreal. And then our operations took on a whole new level of seriousness, and we were we were uh, going after targets as as quickly as we could because, you know, our thought process was at any moment we could be hit again, and that if we didn't uh, catch the bad guy before he got a chance to strike, uh, I mean, we, we could lose another three thousand or more. So. Um, that was a really serious time, and and the threats just kept popping up. I mean, it's, it, the, the the threat on the U.S. embassy in Singapore, and then the U.S. embassy in Manila, and then um, all the activities um, in some of the other parts of the world that where these guys were were operating, and then uh, and then after that, we, of course, we went into uh, we went into Iraq. And that was my next posting. I went in as the head of security for all of our operations in Iraq, which was a huge, huge uh, endeavor. I had a staff of a, about 150 security officers uh, and a variety of people. Um, I had protection units. I had U.S. military detail to me. And we were trying to keep our people safe all over Iraq during a pretty serious uh, conflict time. When I went in in 04, things were starting to get bad. In 03, the Iraqi people were were not um, they're they're they were happier about being out from under Saddam Hussein, but by 04, they were uh, there were a lot of elements that were um, uh, unhappy with the situation and were starting to really act up. So we ended up dealing with a lot of. Uh, uh, indirect fire uh, rockets and mortars into the green zone. I was based mainly in the green zone, uh, which is uh, this, that segment of, of Baghdad that was uh, controlled by U.S. and um, coalition forces. But I traveled to all the different uh, uh, major cities, to, uh, up to, to uh, Mosul. Um, I was in Erbil. I was in, down in Basra. I, I was all over the place doing security surveys and making sure our facilities were uh, up to snuff. So it was a, it was a pretty, pretty uh, hectic year deployment. So the, um, some of the fighting that was starting to take place or some of the attacks at that point, were that, were those like elements of the Baathist party or was that, um, you know, there were really a couple terrorism of kind of guys? One of them, one of them was, um, uh, was there was a guy who's based just outside the green zone, and because of po- political um, influence, we were not able to actually go after him. Mm. And uh, so you've got you've got the politics in play. Uh, you had elements. Um, you had elements of Al Qaeda working in the area. You had uh, former Bath Party people. You had um, uh, yeah there. We, there was a large, it was, Iraq had one of the largest standing armies and we had disbanded them. Right. And they had also, um, 
the equivalent of two-thirds of the U.S. arsenal worth of munitions in that country. So <laughs> bombs, you know, they're, they're explosives and weapons and all over the place. Um, and what happened was that uh, all these groups started using them uh, in a variety of ways. We had, as I said, indirect fire. We had some very strong attacks on convoys along Route Irish, which is the route between the Baghdad airport right. and um, and, ba- and Baghdad proper. Right, very and, uh, uh, infamous um, route. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. That was deadly. In fact, I was there, there when we shut it down. We basically said no more um, – no more regular movements on Rod Irish. It was just too dangerous. Remember, clearly it was October. It was we were getting hit so bad that um, basically said we can't do this anymore. So we did mainly uh, helicopter operations to move back and forth, which was a major, a major inconvenience to say the least. And, and uh, at that point, it wasn't all. Terrible. I mean, it was a, there was it was an interesting time to be a part of such a huge element. And the, the last time the agency had a presence that big and in, in, in one place was in, uh, was in Vietnam. And were you guys and already uh, dealing with Al-Qaeda in Iraq at that point? Yes, they were, they were insurgent. I mean, at that point, it was um, this was where the U.S. Army was, U.S. military, and um, uh, the there were elements who were out there thinking, okay, we're going to attack these guys wherever they are. So they were coming in, and um, and then of course we had the Iranian influence. They were they were actively um, working with different groups, uh, providing uh, support um, to attack uh, coalition forces. It was uh, it was pretty bad. And it was pretty bad. Were you aware of the Iranian support at that time? Yes. Yeah. That was that was. I mean, they they they're busted safe houses where there were, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of, of dollars on the table that the, uh, the Iranians had supplied to, to uh, bolster up the uh, insurgents. And then there was also munitions and things that they were bringing in that were, um, that were, they were using, <clears throat> they were helping supply um, the insurgents in, uh, with uh, technology uh, in terms of uh, IEDs. Um, improvised explosive device um, detonation uh, electronics so they could use cell phones to detonate them uh, rather than um, using hard wire which uh, and then they, and eventually that changed into what they call the EFPs right and explosive really, force projectiles right that was really devastating yeah. for coalition um, yeah. forces because yeah. that started to, to uh, we, we had you know we were combating their small arms fire and then later on some of their smaller explosives with with heavy armor we were uh, you know some of the best armor ever devised but then um these efps were brought in and that's actually kind of a merging of new technology and old technology um efp is a uh, basically a platter charge uh, but uh jazzed up to to have electronics so you could do remote detonation and uh, they were able to, these things would tear through the armor like a hot knife through butter. Right. And were that, those EFPs, were they more directly affecting the British or was that just coalition forces in general? Oh, it's in general. I, I, I was, <clears throat> I left uh, when they really started to kick in, um, in 05. 
And uh, that's when we that's when we knew that they were there, that these electronics were being supplied uh, by somebody because this was advanced electronics. And uh, yeah, that was uh, it got to be very bad. And um, the uh, there wasn't a clear path on what you know, how we were going to uh, address the situation. And that's one of the, uh, you know, the negative parts of, of that whole um, Iraq situation is that there wasn't a clear plan. You know, once we disarm this military, this larger military force, what are you going to do with all these people? Right. Um, right. Yeah. I, I so think it, a lot of people political. look at that moment as one of the, the, the errors that kind of led to the destabilization of Iraq, I think. Like the errors on yeah. the part of the U.S. Uh, decision makers. Correct. And the other part, I think, was that they that they assumed that these groups, that the the, the, Shia, the Shia, the Sunni and the Kurds, once they were out from under the, the Saddam Hussein reign, that they would be more reasonable in their in, in their activities. And they, and they they were like squabbling children. Right. And I think and, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Al-Zakari played a really big role in kind of. Uh, that destabilization process as well. Yeah, and there was uh, there was there was a couple of elements that were really causing problems, and and the wholesale slaughter. I mean, the the, the, the it wasn't just going after coalition forces. They were right. the, the Shia and the Sunni were. I mean, I uh, I was in in our build, our main building in Baghdad when a thousand pound truck bomb went off, uh, not too far away, and it sh- I mean it shook this solid concrete building and uh, the devastation uh, that I saw in the area when I got there, you know, in terms of the crater and the cars blown up on the roofs. And, and that was, that was Iraqi killing Iraqi. Right. And uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's almost mind numbing uh, how, how badly things got. Yeah. I think, you know, I think that aspect is one thing that people um, looking back kind of skip over. Like I was um, recently I was listening to a podcast and this woman was talking about how the U.S. killed like two million people in Iraq or something like that. I feel like anybody who knows anything about it or anyone who's been there off the bat knows that that's not accurate. She has she has a popular platform and a big following online and it's just amazing how people can skip over the fact that there was an actual civil war. Um, between Iraqis, you know, during the the uh, American occupation, it just kind of goes to show how much how people just kind of follow whatever narrative supports their viewpoints. You know, mm-hmm. that's that, and you you bring up a great point. <clears throat> There's a, it's easy it's easier to be led uh, astray uh, from from a vast distance when you don't understand all the complexities, and and a lot of these things are really complex. I mean, they're and do we know? Do we all know the, the the true situation? Probably not. But if you, as you as you mentioned, if you've been there, if you've seen some of the things that that were occurring, you you, you it's um, the propaganda is is. Uh, I mean, the I was there during a couple of, of really important events. Uh, one of which was um, there was more electricity in Baghdad uh, in '05. Than there had been during the entire Saddam Hussein reign. Okay, yeah. Uh, so I mean, 
infrastructure wise, we were we were making and they and that was despite the fact that these insurgents were blowing up stuff. Um, the second thing is I was there for for their for a, their first Democratic vote. Mm. And people came out of the woodwork to vote. And it was extremely dangerous. Right. And there were very there were almost no casualties because the the coalition forces made such an effort to ensure that these people were able to vote. So it's, um, you know, those, those are huge mo- uh, moments that people um, e- can, can easily lose track of. And uh, uh, it's, uh, the, the, these conflicts start out sometimes with the best of intentions and then things get out of, uh, out of hand. I mean, you know, look at, look at the, the Afghan situation. Um, uh, I, I, not to be political, but I have no idea why we're still there. Right. And to tell you, with my last position at the agency was, uh, I was involved in, I was the deputy chief of security for the counterterrorism center. And one of my major, uh, projects was to work with the military and state department and, and, uh, uh, demobilization or, or basically, uh, we were we were pulling out, and uh, we had a date of 2014. Now this is uh, 2012 and 2013 that I was working that project, so we were set to leave Afghanistan in 2014. Right, and five years so, later, you know, we're still there. We're still, yeah, yeah. It can't tell you why. <laughs> so. It's it's one of the hard parts about being in, in government service that people don't understand is, you know, they say, oh, what about this and that? Um, you've got a mission. Uh, well, you know, I've seen so many different presidents. I've seen so many different directors of, of central intelligence. I've seen all that. But when you're in the, when you're down in the trenches doing your job, um, you have your you, you, you have your uh, assignments and you have to do them. Right. Right. And, you know, after, um, I mean, fairly quickly, the U.S. got the Taliban out and Al-Qaeda out of Afghanistan. And then, um, I guess, like, right away, the mission changed into, like, this kind of nation building. And uh, oh. that's where things got really messy, you know. Oh, yeah. Well, it, they, don't, they don't want democracy. Right. And they're not ready for democracy. And... Um, that right there is everything. And if, and the other part is I, I believe in determinism. Uh, you know, if, if, <clears throat> if they want to vote in a Taliban government, then that's, then they voted it in. It's not our, it's not our place to change that. But, uh, but that's, you know, I, 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 you know, I disagree with some of the things that we're doing, but that's, I disagree with other things that we've done too. <laughs> so, um, we're not always right. Nobody, nobody's always right, but, uh, it, it's, it's, it's just hard to sit back and, and watch some of our troops, um, lose their lives in that conflict when really it's, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it's over. Um, and the Taliban, other than the fact that they harbored, um, Al Qaeda, um, they're, they've never really been involved in any attacks on the U.S. outside of Afghanistan. Right. So they, they so, pretty much stick to their, you know, their country. And that's yeah. It, yeah. 
<clears throat> I, and I think that if we just said, okay, go back to, you, here's your country back here. You can take it. And, uh, um, you know, th- this is, uh, uh, just don't, just don't harbor anybody and don't run any training camps and we're fine. But, uh, that, that there's always a lot more interesting things that are going on. I'll give you an example like uh, Mogadishu. Why were we in Somalia when we weren't in some of these other countries in Afghanistan or enough, pardon me, in Africa that were going through similar humanitarian crises? Well, I can tell you one fact, one piece of, it, uh, of information. 70% of the oil drilling rights in Somalia were owned by U.S. companies. Hmm. Mm, there you go. <laughs> right. that, it, that, it always seems to be that. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, you got to sometimes you got to follow the money. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, that doesn't say that we were not saving a lot of lives. I mean, uh, Mogadishu was and is Mad Max. It's well, still to this day. Oh, it's horrific, and um, their best days. Over the, you know, over the last, well, the, the amount of, of aid that came in there and, and when I was there in 93, those were some pretty good times. Um, they hadn't had it that good for probably a decade. And then since then, they probably haven't had it. Um, in terms of food and supplies, and um, places is a mess. Uh, and, I, and I know we're back in there again. I think it was... Um the people responsible for the attack on uh, the USS Cole, or I think it was the embassy in Tanzania. I think they they tracked one or two of those guys to Somalia, and they ended up killing them uh, at some point. Uh, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, it's a bad group that's over there, Boko Haram and all of them, and the other uh, the other elements that are in it. I think. One of the, they're, they're, it's a hotbed. It's, it's a, the problem with those locations are, um, when they're that chaotic, uh, they attract the wrong elements. And then those elements start to bring in troops or, 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 or individuals and train them up. And then they go off and it gets to become a bad cycle. And, and the history has shown that when these, um, these lawless areas, uh, are unmonitored, um, they start to breed uh, a really bad element that that will have an effect on the rest of the world. Yeah, you know, people. You can't just say oh, it's Somalia. We'll just leave them be. Yeah, it's it's kind of um, just kind of talking to people or being in environments that has nothing to do with any of that kind of stuff. You know, counterterrorism or anything like that, and then somehow. The conversation may get may turn to something about foreign policy or something like that. I think people really underestimate uh, how bad or or how connected this um, ideology that the U.S. is trying to counter what we call terrorism. As it's you know, there's elements connected all over the world. I think people, a lot of people don't really realize how how um, connected some of it is. Yes. And and that's one of the things that, uh, not to, to segue back to the book, but that's one of the things that I, I in the process of writing uh, the book, I had two uh, co-writers to help me organize it. And 
what came out was uh, they jokingly called me the Forrest Gump of security because <laughs> I kept being there during these, you know, these very important events. And one of the things that, you know, uh, I, I've worked against bin Laden from Somalia all the way until I left in, in, in uh, or until he was killed. And, um, the, the, the terrorism, um, connection, the thread is goes right through the book and and you can see how our actions and our uh, and the world is has been so affected by it and sometimes we don't we don't understand that okay that's asia that doesn't matter well actually it does it matters a lot i mean uh for example in the philippines we have a huge u.s population of expats and um uh, and and then then you talk about the training camps in, the, in different places and how they've had an effect. The training camps in Pakistan that that caused huge plots uh, to hatch in in coming out of England and coming out of uh, Europe. So uh, these things are, as you pointed out, they're they're so interconnected, and it, sometimes it's hard to see. But uh, one of the things I tried to bring together in the book is is the, the thread that these things are connected, and they're um, and you, you're, it's the you used to call it like whack a mole. You know, the, you, the, it jumps up one side, you whack it down, and then jumps up on the other side, and you're continuously having to fight these firefight these little um, outbursts. But if you don't, you're uh, you get, you'll be overwhelmed. Yeah, and I think a lot of people in the West, uh, Western Europe or you know, America and Canada, I think um, people didn't pay much attention to this until it started happening in the West. But some of these, you know, terrorist attacks and things like that, they've been going on in Southeast Asia, the Middle East, and Africa for years. Um, oh, yeah. It just wasn't until 93 that we kind of got a taste of it and then September 11th like changed everything but people don't realize uh, how much of a problem this has been over time you know since the end of, oh, end of World War II you know spot on spot on I mean um, for example uh, the the third it may not be accurate now because the, there's some changes in the Middle East but up until recently the, the, the country with the third largest number of Improvised explosive device incidents was Thailand. Really? Yep, southern Thailand. But they they keep that under wraps. And then the conflict, the the the, the insurgency, the, the fundamentalist um, Islamic uh, uh, terrorist aspects in the southern Philippines have been a nonstop threat for uh, probably a hundred years. And then. Um, you can pick spots all over the world. And one of the things that's interesting phenomena, you can track this is, um, uh, the phenomena when that, when, when certain dictators are lo no longer in power, what has happened to their, their empires? Um, Yugoslavia was a beautiful vacation hotspot for, was, uh, for, for decades. As soon as he was no longer there, we had a massive conflict. Uh, Saddam Hussein, after he left, 
the Shia and the Sunni and the Kurds are all at it. And um, there's lots of conflicts, areas like that, where without a strong leader of some sort, um, the factions just go um, and wreak havoc. So interesting phenomena. Not that I was a political science major, but uh, <laughs> well, life experience. I, I think you see that in, in Libya as well. Ab- absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Libya is a, is, is a perfect example of, of what what we lost in terms of um, uh, stability. I mean, it, the, the Middle East is is as bad as it was when I first started the agency. We, we got some stability during the period of time that I was the latter part of my career. But then now it's it's just back to being unstable. I mean, uh, we don't know what's going on in Yemen. We don't know what's going on in Libya. We don't. Uh, Egypt's a little shaky. Um, we've got a lot of, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. I was looking at, um, potentially taking a vacation to Egypt. You know, I'd like to see the pyramids and stuff, but checking out the state department's website, there's certain areas where they just say, just don't go to, uh, be- yeah. because of the, the terrorist threat. And I have some friends in Israel and I asked them about it and they pretty much said the same thing. And, yeah. But I think compared to a lot of those countries in that area, Egypt stayed somewhat afloat, you know, during the Arab Spring and things yeah. like that. Well, and, and the, here's the, the, the funny thing is we some of us were actually watching it and, and chuckling because we saw how the real ruling party stayed in power. The, the, the military has always mainly you know, ruled the, the Egypt. And what happened with, when Mubarak was um, overthrown, which is another, uh, another loss. Um, the, uh, the Egyptian military stepped back and said, Oh, well, you want to put in the Muslim brotherhood? Okay, fine. And they said, and they stepped back and let them do it. Knowing full well that these guys had no experience running a country and they would mess it up and the people would v- eventually turn on them, which they did. So it was then, um, the, the Muslim Brotherhood took over right after Mubarak and then the military stepped in after that, right? Yes. They stepped in after the public basically said, you guys don't know how to run anything. And they, they turned on the Muslim Brotherhood and the, and the, and the military stepped in and says, we'll save the day. <laughs> they were always there in power. Right. And did they target the Muslim Brotherhood during that period? or? Oh, they waited. They just waited. They patiently waited. It was, I, I hate to say, but there's a, there were quite a few of us who could actually see, you know, we were watching this happen. And because it was such a smart move. Um, don't, don't get in a conflict. Just stay back because these groups don't they have no idea how to govern. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, that's a really interesting point. I was, um, I think maybe I was doing a little bit of research to write an article on the subject. But in that research, I came to the conclusion that a lot of these groups, terrorist groups, or they may be effective at on the um, acts of terrorism, bombing, shooting, or, or direct combat. Mm-hmm. But once they get to the point where they have to actually govern, they're completely terrible at it. And, Almost all of the time, the people end up turning against them, which is really kind of interesting. 
Yes. Yeah. It's um, now the the ones that that start off for a while doing, um, you know, like they change into they change into a, like a political group, and or the, a fract a faction of them does, and they get more involved in the government and they learn. Then there's there's a little bit more of a chance that that government's going to su- survive, but ter- uh, running a terrorist group and running a government, you know, making sure that the garbage is picked up on time and the trains run on right. time and all that. That's a whole other ball game. Right. And I think out of probably all the terrorist groups, I think people might have thought the Muslim Brotherhood, they might have been the ones to be able to do it, but evidently not. No, no, they, they didn't, didn't pull it off. But they didn't have the experience. They were and uh, and and the Mubarak ran a pretty good um, tight ship. And there was a, I mean, I'll give you an example from, from my optic as a security officer. When after Gaddafi rolled over and basically started to be um, to play ball with the West and not you know get involved in stuff, we didn't we didn't have a single plot coming out of Libya. Right. All right. And then at a certain point, you have to say, okay. Um, that's a good thing. That's a good thing for world stability. That's a good thing for, for everybody. Um, Mubarak things, he kept a tight ship, but then when he got taken out, what did you have? You have a terrorist group running. It's like, um, the situation in, um, in, uh, in, in the Palestinian Palestinian authority, you got a terrorist group running the government. And they're not doing a great job. Yeah. The the podcast that I listened to the other day, I told you the woman was talking about uh, the number of casualties in, in Iraq. She also spoke uh, heavily on, on the Israel-Palestine issue. And um, she was talking about uh, how the Israeli security forces are very harsh and, and things like that. And, and talking about... Um, the settlements and how they're, you know, they're kicking people out of their homes and that kind of thing. And I'm not a hundred percent read into that, but mm-hmm. then, and then she started talking about, um, when they had a, a, a series of protests over a period of time when it got, it got violent and some people were killed and she was just completely leaving out the fact that there were actual attacks on Israel and, um, terrorist attacks and they were firing you know weapons from hospitals and just completely leaves that part out and it you know I lose respect for somebody when they do things like that because you're you're skewing the information and you're not giving the full picture you know exactly it's it's um it's a it's a it's a very confusing picture right if you if you study the whole and and you're you're right I mean there's there are there are things that are not being, um, that have not worked on both sides. Right. Um, but but the violence, if if you if pe- people who who ignore the violence committed by the Palestinian groups, uh, they're missing a lot of history. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if you look back, there was a point where Palestinian terrorists killed more Americans than any other terrorist group. Was that in in Beirut or? In all different areas. I mean, they, remember uh, the Achilles Laurel. 
that was the, that was a Palestinian. That was the PLO. Right, right. And so people forget these guys. I mean, yeah. So so there's there's some some from a security point of view. I you know I I focus on on the threat and and who who are they? You know what's what's the history? And the history is that uh, you know these guys have been very uh, aggressive and and very deadly in terms of their uh, dealings with the U.S. Yeah. So I, I think looking back uh, at at the beginning of the PLO and and the Ashur Arafat, they were doing they were kind of running the first um, sort of runs of of what we consider terrorism with bombings and things like that, like really early on on the uh, from the birth of the you know the country of Israel, and you know using bombs on the road and things like that and i mean years ago like in the 50s so it, it's really mm-hmm. interesting if you look back at the history and then uh you know i'd known that there was conflict in in beirut in in the 80s mm-hmm. but what i didn't know until recently was uh, it got really bad once palestinian groups moved into beirut and uh, i i didn't know that and then you know the israeli military went in and forced and kind of forced them out and mm-hmm. and then I mean there was a lot going on in in Beirut during that time, sure. and then I think the the Jordanians had an issue with them as well. So it's just kind of looking at at history. People just completely ignore that, and and some of that information you wouldn't ever see it on any kind of mainstream uh, channels, you know. Yeah, yep, yeah. I mean, like uh, looking back on the history, uh, the uh, U.S. ambassador to Sudan was killed by Black September. PLO. Really? What, when was that? Like in the sixties or seventy three? Wow. And then, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, they, I mean, there's there's a just a variety. I mean, the PLO was attacking. Uh, they were attacked the Rome Airport, killing a right. number of people. I mean, they were involved in a lot of things. And you know, I, we just can't forget. We just have to put it all in perspective. That's all. I mean, I, I, I don't want to be, uh, um, you know, too one-sided. Uh, but you have to, from from a security point of view, if you're looking at threats, certain elements of uh, have a history, and uh, we have to be we have to be uh, uh, careful. But we don't forget that. Uh, it's it's such an interesting thing. I feel like that happens so so often where. We go through an experience, and you know, maybe two decades later or even longer than that, we just kind of completely forget that it happened, and we don't use the information that we gained from that. Um, and it's really strange how I think how that happens, like over time, kind of repeats itself, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that's one of the things. Uh, looking at the 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 repetitive of threats. You know the same types of things happen, and you can you can extrapolate based on you know previous experiences. But if you forget about it, or you don't follow it, or you don't, uh, or, or you, it's so easy to fall in the trap of uh, of um, not being prepared or being surprised, being surprised by it. Um, the uh, terrorist activities have 
some of the basics have not changed. The players have changed, but some of the basics haven't changed. So, uh, especially working in protective operations, you, at one, at any point, I mean, we can look back at some of the friends we have now were enemies not too long ago. So, <laughs> or f- friends that we had not too long ago are now enemies. Correct. I have friends in the military who were in uh, training uh, foreign. Uh, military liaisons and they trained so many of the guys that later on became our enemies. <laughs> they trained the Iraqis, they trained the Iranians, yep. they trained the Libyans, they trained all these people. Just a matter of when, what timing, what was the timing. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really sort of fascinating. What, um, so after kind of going back after you left Iraq, mm-hmm. what was the next kind of step for you? Um, I did a, a, I did a quick back to Iraq, uh, trip. I was, I led the secret service advance for, uh, vice president Cheney's secret visit to, uh, Baghdad. And then I went back into headquarters for a while. And then I was surged, uh, from that, from there, um, uh, to get bin Laden. That was the, that was the part of that, um, as I said, the zero dark 30 period where, um, I actually worked with the lady in the movie called Maya. Oh, and, yeah. um, yeah. And, uh, uh, w- w- I was working in, in, in the pack Afghan area and, uh, I was running, uh, security for uh, a large part of that region. And so we were dealing with a lot of, uh, the super high threat level, both in Afghanistan and Pakistan and, um, dealing with, you know, we're, tr- we're trying to track him on and, and there weren't too many of us were surprised when when we found him in Asadabad. Um, right. Yeah. That because um, there was just there were too many cu- uh, clues, and the Pakistanis have not been not have not been up uh, up front with us and and forthright. So that's that's a that's a pretty murky situation right there. Absolutely. But I, I spent uh, 15 months in, in working that area, especially a lot of work in Pakistan during some serious threats. I left just before um, they, they, they blew up, uh, uh, completely destroyed the, the Marriott in Islamabad. Oh, there was and, a, big, uh, a big bombing there, right? Oh, yeah. But there were, there were multiple bombings on that, on that Marriott uh, over the years. Um, there, there had been a bombing in the front and there had a guy, uh, I was actually in Pakistan working at one point when, um, a suicide bomber with a vest tried to get in the back door and a Pakistani parking lot guard stopped him. Oh, wow. Uh, unfortunately he blew up and, and killed the guard and which was horrific. But then, um, after that I, I, I needed to take a break. So I, uh, I, I left. Uh, I went on. I, de- I was detailed over to the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office. That's the, the satellite uh, organization, and I worked uh, the, the large as a director of security for the largest mission ground station that uh, the NRO has. Thirty-seven hundred people and a million square feet of skiff. So it was, and uh, it was quite a, a complex uh, element. And that's where I actually got back into the uh, active shooter situation because that was uh, just after um, uh, a couple of incidents, including Fort Hood. So I had to, uh, I had to reconfigure 
Um, my thought process is from terrorism to <laughs> you could call it internal terrorism. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And then uh, I did uh, I did two years there, and then I went back to headquarters and uh, worked uh, special projects for the Anti-Terrorism Force Protection Office. Um, that's where I got involved in, in uh, uh, working um, on uh, emergency action planning for our, our personnel overseas, specifically uh, uh, action plans, emergency evacuation plans, uh, things like that. Um, upgrading um, the policies and procedures, and then working on some of their physical security projects. And then I eventually left that job and went up as a, my last position was as deputy chief of security for CTC, which is a huge element. And I was very involved in supporting uh, operations in Afghanistan and <clears throat> Iraq and uh, part of the drawdown, or the, well, the attempt to drawdown. So I wanted to so, ask about um, so about Benghazi and and the reason I want to ask is because of your experience mm-hmm. in the security side. So the the security team members who were there, uh, they were part of the GRS. Was that did did some of the roles that you were working in evolve into that at some point, or is that just something completely different? Um. Uh, let me answer that by saying um, <clears throat> the the PAC um, the PAC uh, changed names. That, that is that same unit is to the same is the same unit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I had to be oblique. No, no, that's fine. Um, so yeah, uh, certain things I've been I'm not allowed to to talk about. Right. And. Um, but that is the same unit. Okay. And uh, speaking of Benghazi, um, that is one of those situations where um, the primary mission uh, took a backseat to the secondary mission, which was basically static security. And that's when things go uh, bad sometimes. Now, I will tell you this. Uh, having worked in embassies all over the world, I've been fifty something countries. Uh, a lot of repeats in the bad places. Uh, you wouldn't want to go if your if your travel agent ever suggested traveling for vacation to most of the places I've been to, fire them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> the uh, uh, unfortunately, the State Department, because of the nature of the of that beast, they are they have. Um, Routinely taking risks um, with the security of their of their personnel, um, be, because they look at things from a political optic, and whenever we decide that place is too dangerous um, to have our embassy personnel, what what clearly comes across to the outer world is that. Um, the, not only is the place really dangerous, but the host government is not able to fulfill its requirements because per the Geneva Convention, the host government is responsible for the security of all the embassies. So in other words, the Russian embassy, the German embassy, the French embassy, the, all the embassies that are in Washington, D.C., their protection is the responsibility of the U.S. government. Right. And so when we're in 
in this case, uh, Benghazi, that host government was supposed to be providing protection. They were not capable of that. And instead of uh, basically pulling out and sending, you know, which would send a message, which would, which would, uh, which had a political effect, we, the, the, the State Department decided to stay in. And they've done this many, many times. But th- this time they, they, they rolled the dice and they lost. And, and these um, are decisions that, not made, obviously, by the, the, uh, the security or the, or the people running security. Nope. The people running security, uh, as the evidence has shown, um, put in multiple requests for upgrades. And the, the situation, their sit reps uh, were very clear that the threat level was very high. So um, that was a failure at the top leadership levels. Absolutely. And there is no way they going around it. Uh, and uh, to give you uh, the, the equivalency, as I said, Les Aspen, the Secretary of Defense, was fired from his job after Black Hawk Down because the military asked for additional armor and he turned them down wow. for, po- for political reasons. Right. And it, you can none of that, from there. Yeah. None of that makes any sense. Like what, you know, cause the, the, uh, the guys on the ground are there already or in many cases engaged in combat. So why not just give them what they need to do the job? You know, it's just really kind of crazy. Well, because it, because from a politi- from the political standpoint of the state department, if you get, if you bulk up your security that much, you're, you're sending the wrong message and their opinion, the wrong message to the host government. Um, they're basically saying, oh, you guys are, are not competent. Um, and we don't trust you. No. And that is the right message under certain circumstances. But in this case, they didn't, they didn't follow through. So you feel like in, in some instances, it's, it's totally worth that extra security or if it's not worth Absolutely. the security, then just pull out completely or, or scale back. Absolutely. One or you've got you should you should be adjusting based on threat. Every uh, we uh, in the security at the at the CIA, we are we are a threat based um, uh, reactionary element. We are continuously reassessing the threat and adjusting based on the threat. And when you start to add political aspects to it, you you color the water, and it gets it gets to be very murky. And and um, there are mo- I can't tell you there's so many occasions where the um, politics have played a role, and people have gotten hurt over the years. I mean, there was a church bombing in in Islamabad years ago that was the result of of a, a political decision to not increase the threat level and increasing the threat level would increase the security would have would have in yeah would have increased security posture and would have uh uh people would not have been allowed to go out to this church i see where they were killed by a guy through through grenade so and and I got that from a 
from the State Department regional security officer who was there in Pakistan at the time. This was his his assessment was that that was clearly a political decision. And I have my years in the working uh, with State Department. I, I I'm not trying to to um, there's a lot of good people who work at State Department, but in this case, they 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 have a, a tendency to opt against security. The security is not their big thing. And is that because the um, and it's kind of a, a question I've always had. But a lot of like a lot of their leadership is is they're appointed. Right, right by by so by politicians. A, a, uh, yep, they're politicians, so they really don't understand the, uh, the you know they're not part of that organization usually the the number two in an embassy the dcm deputy chief of mission usually that person is a career diplomat right and they have a good grasp but these but these political appointees a lot of times they have really no background i, I always and find that strange like why would they let someone with no security background or someone who's at least someone who studied it extensively into these type of roles. I always find that a little weird. Yeah. It's, it's an unusual phenomenon. It's, um, it's the system. And, and, uh, I'll tell you this, this, the, uh, the regional security officers or, uh, you know, the diplomatic security bureau, the, uh, Diplomatic security, which is the, the security element of the State Department, right. they're a very professional, um, uh, hardworking group, and they do their best. But they're um, they can only do what they can do, and and their management doesn't back them. So the uh, I mean, I'm sure there's politics to some degree in in, mm. in all the the agencies, and uh, but I would sure. I would imagine that there's less of that at the CIA, and is that just because of the nature of the the organization, or? Um, well, yeah, some of it's one of the interesting things about security is, um, at the CIA, um, the office of security was, we, we call it baked in, not bolted on because we were, we were implemented. We were part of, part of the original element in 1947. So we've had security in CIA since pretty much the beginning. Um, and that does have a huge impact on how you look at the world and, how, and what you do. Um, uh, where State Department had, um, it, it's it's been harder for them to operate. Um, FBI didn't have any security, real security element until after their 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 their, uh, their spy Hansen. And and when you say they never had a security element, they didn't have a a career. They did not. They did not have an established security office Hmm. in the FBI, which turned out to be a problem. And is that is that different from like the um, the HRT, like a unit like that, or would they fall under that? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. HRT, uh, hostage rescue team. That's that's uh, that's a a tactical team. I'm talking about a. Um, an office of security that is focused on of on security from a variety of aspects. We're talking about physical security. We're talking about technical security, computer security, uh, personnel security, and part of personnel security is clearances and things like that, and counter um, 
counterintelligence, uh, an element that is internal looking at your operations. And uh, yeah, they, they didn't really, uh, there was no real career track. There was no, there was nothing. They had the equivalent of hall monitors, just about the best they had. Well, so, yeah. so kind of following, um, you know, the, the tail end of your career mm-hmm. and then when you actually retired, uh, how has that transition been for you from retiring from the agency? In oh, it's been, a, it's been interesting. <laughs> Transitioning from a, from a, I mean, I, the longest span I ever spent in really, in really, really in one place was the three years I was in Asia. And that's over 24 uh, years. 24 years. Uh, I did spend about four years work. You know, I had an apartment at four, four consecutive years, but I was gone for so much of it. I don't even count that. So, um, so with it, with quite a vagabond career, I had, I had, I didn't have a traditional career. I was out about way too much. And so it, it it's a strange lifestyle, and um, it takes some serious uh, adjustment afterwards. And uh, uh, the, some of my friends used to say I, I was seduced by the dark side of the force <laughs> because I kept taking these different jobs that kept me traveling. But they were so interesting um, that I, I personally had a hard time uh, turning them down. But there came a point where I realized, you know, I'd, I'd worked – every major conflict area that the U S government had been in since 93 and it's 2013. And we were looking at Yemen and Libya and, um, uh, just a variety of other bad places. And I, and I'd gotten way too good at war zones and, uh, I just didn't know how many cat lives I had left. Um, so I said, nah, there were other things that I wanted to do. Um, and so I decided that I would, uh, I, I um, retired. And uh, actually, we like to call it transitioned. I transitioned into, from, from one career track into another. So now I, I work, um, I have a small consultancy, and I basically um, do some security assessments. I work uh, in the area of active shooter. I write a lot of articles about personal safety. And um, so I, but the adjustment, uh, moving back to my hometown, and uh, it's been, it's been interesting. It's not. It's. Uh, I'd be lying to you if I said it was easy. <laughs> it's. Uh, uh, it's been. It's been an adjustment. Going from sixty miles an hour to, to ten miles an hour is is a change. Right, getting off that train. Yep. Yep. And was there one specific thing that kind of pushed you towards retirement or was it just like a, a culmination of everything? Uh, I think one of the, one of the huge factors was, um, uh, I was just missing out on too much family stuff. Um, I have a daughter and, uh, uh, she's, uh, half English, half, U uh, S set. And, uh, I, uh, I found out that I just, just was spending too much time gone and I was going to miss out on too many things. And so I, uh, that was a huge factor. I was able to be around for uh, to to be at her wedding, and um, and then uh, there's always the elderly parents situation, and um, there were some other things personally that I like to do. I, I I used to coach wrestling, so I'm back doing that. Nice. Uh, 
yeah. So you know, some some things I just couldn't do before that uh, now I I can I can do. So and I'm enjoying that. And also, I was getting a little long in the tooth to be hitting the war zone stuff. Uh, <laughs> it's time for the youngsters to take their place. Right. Right. Absolutely. And so. Speaking of the, the wrestling part, was the was um like mixed martial arts and combatives a, p- a part of your job, or were you guys focused more on like weapons and stuff like that? Uh, some combatives, but um, for me, the the a lot a lot of the uh, the principles that I learned in wrestling, you know, applied in terms of work ethic, huge, um, you know, the, you know, the ability to uh, self critique um, was a huge. Uh, had a huge impact in terms of my ability to, to, uh, to learn and improve my capabilities. Um, physically it helped me because, uh, when you're working in these different zones and you're doing certain things, you'd be, you know, you might be carrying body armor, you might be hauling rucksacks. So, uh, staying in shape was, was a, was a major factor, uh, for me. Um, and also it's a, it's a credibility thing, uh, when you're in certain areas where, uh, you're working with uh, with elite units in the military, um, and uh, uh, in a lot of cases, I was providing on on the ground briefings to them. Um, uh, so it it, it definitely uh, was a, a factor. Plus, there's a very aggressive mindset in wrestling, so it, which helps when you're dealing with some of the things that I had to deal with in terms of threats and right. um, yeah. Right. Well, you know, it, it was really good to sit down and talk to you. Um, so what's the best place that anyone from the audience who, who may be interested in, in learning more about your career, what's the best place where they can go and, and pick up a copy of your book? You said Amazon or? Um, yes. Uh, I, I have a LinkedIn page um, under Thomas Picora, and I, uh, I put in uh, every two weeks I do an excerpt from the book with some photos and um uh, the book is available for pre-publication sale, which means that you you can buy it, but it won't be delivered until the seventh of May. That's on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. And then I also have uh, uh, a Facebook page for the book. It's a Guardian on Facebook, and um, I put um, some articles in there. I'll, I will be having a putting a, a video with a what's it? it's a video slideshow with a lot of photos. And some background on the book and and my career on that, and then I'll be doing some, hope hopefully you'll be doing some book signings and I'll, uh, once the book comes out. So um, that's pretty much what I've been been very focused on on uh, working to get the book out. It's been a it's been a three year odyssey for for the process of of getting the book together. Yeah. Uh, yeah, getting getting the book approved by the CIA's Publication Review Board has been a um, it's been an interesting three years. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of working with them to get details out because this is um, uncharted territory. Um, uh, there's never been really any of these uh, the details about this unit um, previously uh, exposed. Hmm. So uh, the, uh, the agency was. Uh, naturally very reticent about um, allowing me to share certain stories, but they were, uh, I was able to get a lot of, a lot of the information out. So I think uh, people will find it interesting. And um, it's, it's a, it definitely uh, exposes people to 
protective operations in the war zones and how low profile differs from high profile protection like the Secret Service does. So it's a pretty informative book in terms of that. Yeah, I, I can't wait to actually pick up a copy of it. Um, you know, just from our conversation, it's it's clear to me that you have some uh, profound experiences. And, uh, you know, I look forward to reading about it in full detail in the book. And I would recommend for my audience to pick up a copy if they can. Um, so, like I said, you know, it was great to be able to sit down and, and talk to you about some of these things and some of your experiences. And, um, you know, I, I hope everything works out for you going forward. Great. Thanks, John. Appreciate you uh, having me as a guest on your show. No problem. Thank you.
Before we hear back from Thomas regarding the changes the Central Intelligence Agency underwent after 9-11, I would like to give a quick thank you to my sponsor for this episode, Duke Cannon. Now let's get back to Thomas Pecora and the changes that the CIA went through after the 9-11 attacks.